I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower, a weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Correct with Maximum Firepower. For you and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello. This is Maximum Firepower. It is a great honor to have my guest Larry Lalonde here today, the guitarist of Primus, one of the most interesting and spectacular bands on the hard alternative Bay Area funk rock spectrum. Larry, how are you today, sir? I'm good, sir. Thank you for the kind words. It's very, <laughs> it's very, very nice to see you. Larry and I, we connect over a number of things. We are guitarists in sort of odd left of center playing guitarists, but we have a deep abiding love of heavy metal music. You may not know that about Larry, but if you didn't before, now you do. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. You know, I came from, I started playing guitar because of arena rock, you know? Let's lean into that because my rock began with heavy metal in arenas as well. So what was your jumping off point? Uh, Well, the first show was Rush, Moving Pictures Tour. But the thing is, is it sounds like, oh, you could, the music would be this big, giant thing. But it was actually just, I'd never been to a concert. So the spectacle of walking in and seeing all these, you know, guys with long hair and then the place is full of smoke and then the lights go out and the lights come, everything happens. I was like, what is this? You know, <laughs> so it was nuts, you know. That's, so, a, that's a heady moment. I was, yeah. I, I saw that too. I saw that tour as well. But yeah, it's a it's a heady moment. That first time you're in, that, like you feel like that kind of tribal energy in the room. Yes, exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I was amazing. Okay, so so it was a, it was Rush, and then uh, probably all of the, the uh, usual suspects: the ACDCs, the Maidens, the Priests. Yep, you're going down. The, well, actually, the next weekend was Van Halen, so it was like Jeez. so that week before that was like, oh, that's what's Van Halen got the record. You know, had Van Halen one, and just the the cover alone, I was like, this is so rad. What is this stuff? And yeah, yeah. So yeah, so after that concert, yeah. what ve- what venue was that Van Halen show? Because that would have been seventy nine, maybe uh, eighty one. 81 it was until he, oh so that was maybe women and children first uh it, it was fair warning and uh yeah it was it was like i think the show actually you see those videos with the big light vh because they were filming you know yeah yeah, yeah. so when i see those things I'm like that's the concert but yeah so after that th- that's the one at the next morning after the van halen like mom i need a guitar we got to go get a guitar oh okay. so you, were, <laughs> you, you were propelled by uh edward van halen and company to get yes very much so yeah, that's a, that's a big moment for a young lad. So I want to talk a little bit about sort of like the early days of Primus, because I, while Primus is a band that is loved and adored in many circles, I believe that Primus does not get the credit that Primus deserves. Primus was really part of the, like, first, not the, even the first wave, but sort of pre the first wave of what became kind of the Lollapalooza Nation, what became alternative music. I remember as, you know, kind of like left of center-ish rockers in Hollywood hearing tell of Primus. <laughs> like, we heard tell and there were two things that we heard one that it was odd musically and this is before anyone's ears were attuned to anything that had both one foot firmly in rock and firmly in what later became alternative right right yeah uh and so it was odd musically and that people went absolutely fucking ape shit at their shows (laughs) those are the the two things that like came down and then i remember seeing like a bootleg vhs i don't know what the venue was it was i-beam or something i forget what it was but it was some it was a bootleg of a Prima show, and it was the behavior. It was the first time I saw what later became the behavior of rock fans, which was the swirling pit, the pogoing, the stage diving. I'd never seen that before. Oh, really? 
I'd never seen that before. The first time I saw that was on that was the Primus tape. Right. It's like there was like a madness and intensity to it. So take me back to uh, the fledgling Primus days. And what, those, <laughs> what, what was your experience on stage when all that was going on? Uh, well, that that yeah, that kind of stuff you're talking about. So in the Bay Area, it was kind of a, a hangover or leftover from the sort of Bay Area metal scene and punk rock scene, which it kind of merged, you know, because that whole thing in the clubs became like, you know, Slayer was coming up and Metallica and Exodus. And there's all this metal scene, which I was a huge part of at the time. And then so then I kind of morphed into the Gilman punk scene. They, they all started kind of merging you know, with DRI and that stuff. And then so then when Primus came out, it sort of touched that same nerve, I think, with people as far as it the energy and everything and the shows became sort of that same, not, but not quite as brutal as a metal thing, more of a, a fun version of the pit, if that makes any sense. Like to some extent, I mean, it was still pretty crazy, but <laughs> but yeah, it was really like sort of cracked the door open. And it was, it was like music was taking a step in a bold new direction and not just like people were reacting to it. Yeah, it's one thing. It's one thing to have like an art band with like a theremin in somebody's basement. You know, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> thing to be like playing this music, which is very, very kind of like on and off kilter. But now, so, so I have a very, very strong memory of the San Francisco like funk scene. It was a thing in and of itself. I was in a band called Lockup, which was yep, yep. played in the Bay Area. There was Psycho Funkapus, some other bands like that. Yes, uh, Limbo Maniacs. I think were like some some other. Yeah, but yep, right. But that was. <laughs> But that was a scene, it felt in some ways self-contained. And that's how we heard about it. This was like the San Francisco funk scene that had, you know, like this kind of slappy bass playing, but it was odd and punk right. at the same time. But then that became one of, in my view, this is where I think Primus gets underserved, is became one of the cornerstones of what became the huge alternative nation later on. You know, there was the sort of a Soundgarden cornerstone, a Jane's Addiction cornerstone, and a Primus cornerstone. That was like the foundation of all the stuff that came. And right. I don't believe that you've gotten enough credit and you're getting it right now. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate it immensely. <laughs> yeah, because because that scene, that sort of that funk metal scene, the funny thing was, is I think they came with that term funk metal because all those bands that you mentioned, there was that whole scene and it was, they called it that because they would play like a funk part and then a metal part. Yeah. And so, but for us, we, you know, we played with those bands because we played with whoever came through town. You know, we, one weekend we played with like School ED and then the Sea Hags the next night. So, yes. you know, scre- and, then, and then Screaming Jay Hawkins the next. And so we were playing with everybody. So we weren't necessarily like, a, we didn't look at ourselves as a funk metal band. We just looked at our films like a, a high, you know, just an avant-garde, more like a, you know, have, like where the Dead Kennedys weren't really a punk band until they were artsy. And so... So we, I don't know, I, our, so the funny thing was, is when the record companies came through in a sort of Seattle-esque uh, swooping up of all the bands, they signed all those bands, Psycho Funkopus, like yeah. the, the Limbos, all the bands, except for us. We were the only one, yeah, we were the only ones that they were like, I don't know about that one. That's a little too far. <laughs> well, 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 history, history has proved them all wrong. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is the U2 rejection letters. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's these great there's these great letters like dear mr hewson your music does not suit our present needs oh man i wish i wish you would have saved some of those because yeah because we have versions of those from all the big record companies yeah, you yeah. know like yeah thanks but no thanks yeah like what 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 genius at the record company was like no um okay so i i speaking of like so eventually you ended up on interscope right yes before then like i mean i heard there was music before then right like John the Fisherman is on. Yeah. Else, right. Yeah. 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 Well, well, what we did was we, we put out, we just, we know since we didn't get signed, we said, we got to do something. So we just recorded one of our live shows at the Berkeley square, oh, you yeah. know, and it, we, we didn't even test. We just recorded it. We didn't even test any mics or anything. 
we print then we we borrowed some money, press records sent out to uh, college radio stations, and that's sort of where people started hearing us. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Very much like, do it yourself. <laughs> there were a number of things that were striking about the those first recordings that then we got, and we all sort of gathered around somebody's cassette player to hear like what the, the thing was. <laughs> it was it was we'll talk we're, we're gonna get more in depth into the, the music and the guitar and bass you're in less and how the interesting way you play together, but lyrically it was different than anything that anybody had like thought about putting on a record. It was so like trippy, like it was like audaciously weird. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like in a way, that, <laughs> it kind of like outflank Frank Zappa weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, it definitely wasn't. It wasn't your typical sort of uh, sit down and and write. Uh, you know, a version of what everybody else has done. It was, yeah, it was very unique. I, you know, I don't know how he came about all that, but it was, uh, I enjoyed it myself very much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it really, it really, uh, and again, like this was, this was a crucial moment. It was like, it was one of the things that helped push that boulder to the top of the hill when it rolled, rolled down and became like sort of the lot it took over the world was that you could make music that was odd and left of center. You could write lyrics that were odd and left of center and really, really connect. It was part of what was one of the, like, I think, chinks in the armor of what had been kind of like the 80s hair metal scene where everyone had to do everything exactly the same. And the one with the, the best cheekbones and the one with the <laughs> best, you know, the best, whatever, Ted Templeman production, whoever it was, whichever guy, you know, was the producer. Right, right. Favor at that time. It was like the idea was to be the same. And now right. it, became, it became clear, like, the idea was to be different. Yeah, no, that was what was great because it was that scene. What was so cool is it was, you know, Jane's Addiction, you know, you guys, uh, you know, all those bands from that era, all of a sudden, everyone wasn't, they had their unique thing, but they kind of fit together. And it was sort of like, we're going to shoehorn ourselves into this sort of Whitney Houston world of what's being pushed out there in the world. And, you know, and, and Perry really did that with Lollapalooza. It was like, there was no mainstream sort of avenue for this music until Lollapalooza. Until, you know? un until, until then. Though it was like bubbling underneath and it made it like, and you know, thank you for including my band in it, but we were, we were definitely second wave. It was like, I, the, what you guys and those other bands did. And I give like credit to living color as well. I think that they, right. they kind of get short shrift because they kind of broke the color barrier in a way that it made, right. didn't just have to have white guys in rock band. Um, but what it allowed was for bands to sort of dream outside the box Right. And it was like, yes, I love, uh, yes, I want to play music that feels like honest to me, but there's no chance of it ever being successful. Now you could play music that felt like it was honest to you. And there was every chance in the world that it had the possibility. Totally. You know, the roulette ball might fall in, you know, in your, <laughs> in your yes. slot. Whereas, whereas before that was off the table. Like if they're singing about fishermen and like doing like a weird <laughs> dance on the stage. Um, right, right, right. And anything is possible. Anything is possible. I'm Tom Morello. This is Maximum Firepower. It is a great honor to have my guest Larry Lalonde here today, the guitarist of Primus. One of my favorite records is Sailing the Seas of Cheese, which I think like kind of like gets the whole Primus delivered the goods in my in my <laughs> opinion. You know what I mean? It was, right, I, was right. really I was proud of that record because it was where the world got let in on the secret that only some of us knew up until right, that right. time. So sort of tell me about that moment in time. Well, that, yeah, because that record's called Sailing the Seas of Cheese because that was, you know, the, that was the third record. The two previous, like, well, the first we put out ourselves and the second we made ourselves, but Caroline put it out, Caroline Records. Yeah. So then Interscope had signed us. And so now we looked at ourselves as, okay, we're going into this world of the big record companies and we are now selling the seas of cheese, you know. <laughs> we're going to be marketed out there against, you know, with all the stuff that you see. You know, we're now on the radar. So 
That yeah. was sort of, you know, that's what the, why the album's called that. And, uh, yeah. but the, the funny thing was, is we were still too, like, you know, stupid to think like, okay, here's your chance to get in and do the right thing and work on the hit song. We, you know, I remember Tom Wally coming to the studio, see what we were doing. And I had a banjo and Les had a, a clarinet. We were making like a residence type song and it was, he was like, what are you guys doing? We're like, we're making a record. <laughs> um, there's a great Jimmy Iving quote that I remember at, at the time where he was like, I'm not even going to pretend that I understand the mix of this album. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah, we had a, a giant meeting. It's like the bass is so fucking loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at one point, you know, he says, uh, you know, we had this big meeting about, okay, what should, you know, strategy, like, what should you do? What should you do? And we we're kind of like, you know, we just want to do what we're doing. And finally, he's like, look, I don't know what you guys are doing. Tom Wally likes you guys. He trusts you guys. So I'm in too, you know? He, he, yeah, that was basically his take. Yeah, he knew enough to be like, you guys. Seems to be working. You guys know what you're doing. Go for it, you know, which is so cool, you know, which which is cool. And that is and that is, you know, and again, like your band is is oh, thanks, because, you know, at, at that point, I think there was already a Nirvana and a Pearl Jam who were out in the world. Yes, really. It really was a time where record companies let go of the idea that they knew what was best. Totally. Yeah. No, that's, it was funny because they were kind of like. Yeah, guys, you know, I remember Jimmy sitting us down and explaining to you, you your first album, maybe, you you know, you sell a, a couple hundred thousand, you play like 2,500, you know, kind of told us how you would build this thing over the years. You know, the next record, you sell this many, and then uh, No Doubt put out the, their giant record, and then it was like, forget it, eight million the first week or you're out of here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's yeah, that's great and all, but that loud bass, I'm not sure. That yeah, the, yeah, the mixing. I remember there being a lot of talks about you know maybe get a producer like going down that avenue, and then you know that never happened. Thank, thank, thank goodness you did. But but that was that really was it was really one of the bands that pushed open that door for record companies to get to leave them completely alone with regard. I remember there was once one sort of very tentative suggestion in pre-production for our first record, and 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 like there four guys kind of went. Ah, and then they're like, okay, cool. Well, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, they didn't push, right? Yeah, like, okay, I guess, you know, Primus, that, that sounds crazy, and that seems to be doing well, so like, let's do it. Oh, great, so so we actually, like, we actually did uh, open, allow some Absolutely. people to get away like, some literally, stuff. Literally, literally, yeah. Oh, good. For sure, for sure, for sure. Okay, so let's talk about Antipop. That is a record that we made a, a little bit together. There was some overlap. Yes. Where where I where I apologize for sort of intruding into your your mid-range, <laughs> your mid-range, spe- I I produced a couple songs on that record. For those of you who don't know, it's a, I think it's a, it's yeah. a great Primus record. I produced a couple songs. Like, Les came over to the house. He came over. We had, like, a great jam session. Like, we just sat down with bass and guitar, came up with a few riffs, went in there and kind of made a, a couple of songs. And I, I had a great experience with that, and I listened to that record from time to time, and, and it rocks me. But the one thing that I think that you said at the time, very candidly, was, like, there were a couple of riffs on there. You're like, you're like I'm not sure this sounds like a, Primus rip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was, but, you know, it, it was gentle. You said it gently. That's funny because I mean, uh, I remember when we did that because that's another thing of always being open to stuff. It was like, yeah, but let's see what this does. I remember doing it. And it was actually, I was like, oh, this is actually really fun having another guitar player because yeah, I came up with these parts that came off of yours, and it was, it yes. was, and it, I, I remember thinking at the time and now looking back too, it was like it was a really great chance to do that i really enjoyed having because you know most of the time it's like three guys if i stop playing there's a giant hole now there was sort of this new avenue to sort of fit into and then you know obviously the, the riffs are awesome you came up with and those songs turned out great yeah that was really that was that was really fun and yeah. and i uh i you know i spin that sometimes on my some of those jams on my lithium station and and it's 
I like, you know, I, yeah, I love those songs actually. I like, I like the rock. All right. So let's get back to metal where we, where we belong. Yes. Was Eddie your, the poster on your wall or. Yes. Eddie was, Eddie was the guy, like there was no other guy, you know, it was to be, you know, arguments that, you know, is it with other guys that loved Angus and I was Eddie and then Randy Rhodes came along and it was like, okay, now it's opening up. There's other stuff, you know? <laughs> yes, there's more uh, pieces on the chessboard. The more pieces on the chessboard, then that led to, uh, you know, when, it, when we lived, if you would, you'd go out to Berkeley to sort of get out into the real world and there was record stores. And so then you would find like, you know, actually the record vault, they had the Ingve demo. And so no one had heard Ingve, and you couldn't buy an Ingve record. And so that was kind of like, what the hell is this? And to this day, I don't think anybody's topped that demo you know so was that was that like after Steeler and stuff yeah yeah, yeah Ingve Sol- right 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 I think right. I think it was after Steeler yeah because I'd yeah, never yeah. heard of him but uh I didn't either yeah I mean I when I I don't I didn't hear the demo but like when Rising Force came out I remember I was at college just going well I, <laughs> I guess there's more <laughs> yeah and I guess I know I've and also I don't I don't think I'm gonna top this so maybe I yeah, should yeah. figure out some other stuff figure out something else. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I I thought we had kind of had the bookends you know we go here's Chuck Berry here and there's Eddie Van Hitt, and then I uh oh <laughs> there might be more there might there, be yeah more. there's more levels yeah yeah so I think we probably had the same trajectory as far as guitar guys you know with you know Bad Allen then Randy Rose I kind of think yep. who was after that really as far as like you know, guitar hero wise, I don't know if it, maybe Ingve was the next one for me in that yeah. lineage. I mean, I really leaned into, I mean, sort of pre Eddie, like I leaned into like the seventies riff rock. I mean, quite obviously, but, but that was like, for, for me, like it was all, it was all like Zeppelin Sabbath, ACDC. Oh, it was like the rhythm. Like I like sort of admired sort of the ace freely guitar solos, but I loved the riff of yeah. rock city, you know, like that was it. Right. Right. Yeah, and then it was for me, it what really was Eddie Van Halen that kind of like, you know, again, it was the first time where you go like, well, here's the goalposts. Oh, no, here's the goalposts. Uh, right, right, right. As, as they moved, they moved out considerably. Then for Randy Rose was my dude. Um, but yeah, then Ingve was one step beyond, <laughs> yeah. beyond all that. So, so here's a, the interesting thing, though, is I don't hear much of any of those guitar players in your playing. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like explicitly. So, t- what is your journey? This is, this is something that I, I harp on. To anyone who's willing to listen, so I'll inflict this on you as well. Is that when you pick up when you when you pick up a guitar that there's or an instrument, any instrument that there's two categories, uh, and sometimes they overlap. Sometimes they don't. There are musicians and there are artists. And in order right. to be a musician, you have to have abilities. In order to be an artist, you have to have ideas. Right. Um, and so, so like clearly, you are in the world of art. <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. As, as as well as as well as uh, uh, having you know musical prowess you have your clearly your own voice on the instrument you've gone beyond your influences or outflank them so what tell me about that journey to being the weirdo guitar player that we all love <laughs> uh yeah because i mean it was the same for me it was like you know the zeppelin and the sabbath the riff was stuff that's where i was until i think you know that i started taking lessons from joe satriani and oh, so that you, turned i didn't know i didn't know you were another student oh. of joe yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so that opened a huge door because then it became a lot of trickery and, you know, the what the sounds, making the sounds with it, which I think, uh, you know, I'm there's me and you were the two guys who make weird, probably hold the record for the most non-guitar sounds made together. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so I started learning the stuff, you know, like playing above the, the nut and the hitting the, the springs in the back and, you know, lowering the G string, slacking off and pulling across like a bow and, you know, and like to see by flexible kind of stuff, pulling the string off the fretboard. And so, yeah, so here, let's well, Satriani, what that was the big thing that really went like, okay, this is a 
just a piece of wood with strings and you can do whatever the hell you want with it. Yeah. And so the combination of that and you're not going to be Buckethead or Ingve, maybe you Maybe, you know, left more uh, RC and not as shreddy. Yeah, those are taken. Those are taken. <laughs> There's no room for you here. So so for, for people who are listening who may not be familiar with some of the players here, Joe Satriani is a uh, a noted shredding guitar player who had a, uh, I think we did a very unique thing. He had a gold record, maybe even a platinum record, with his with his um, instrumental album "Surfing with the Alien," which came out yes. in maybe 1988, something like that. So he became like almost a household name as like a shredding guitar player with no vocals on right. just an, an absolutely unheard of thing but what is unique about this guy is he was kirk hammett's guitar teacher he was larry's guitar teacher and he was steve vi's guitar teacher. yes so he had like this factor i mean anybody else am i missing anybody else yeah uh alex skolnick oh uh, my gosh I yeah no i'm sure there's a ton i mean from testament yeah, from testament yeah Char charlie hunter had taken a few lessons from him uh wow wow so he was um, like the like the Bay Area guitar army of excellence funnel. Yes. Yeah, how much did it cost? How much were guitar lessons with Satriani? I think it was eleven dollars a half hour. Eleven dollars. It was yeah. money. Well, and the funny thing was, Joe. Well, he, yeah, J Joe. So everybody in the Bay Area had like their local guitar teacher at the store, the local store. And then in Berkeley, Joe was teaching everybody's guitar teachers. So. When I I just happened to walk into the shop where he was at one time and you know have the little thing you pull off the wall for guitar lessons. I, yeah. I was like, I think this and it is was that guy Yeah, it was Joe Satriani. Yeah, the, the most probably the best day, of, most lucky day of my life as far as uh, the future. Well, so Joe Satriani, just to be clear, taught the guitar players from Metallica, Primus, Testament, and Steve Vai and his many bands. Yes, that is. That's a pretty. That's pretty good. <laughs> that's a pretty, on your, pretty good. On your, on your resume, so so he was a good teacher then. Well, yeah, and the thing is, it's like I actually because you know when I try to show people stuff, I'm like, oh, I guess there's an art to teaching too, which Joe clearly had a not only being an amazing guitar player, and on top of that too, just see, being in a little room and seeing somebody actually play like that was a huge thing. You know, not was you were seeing it on TV or at a concert. It's like no, I'm actually seeing this person do it. It's like whoa. All right, so in conclusion, uh, to Primus 2021 and, and beyond, what's what the hell's going on? You recently played a show nearby that I didn't yeah, get well, we the were, house for, and I apologize. Well, I take trust me, I, I I understand. I do the same thing all the time. It's hard to get places, but uh, especially when you're busy. But uh, we, I think we were in the same boat just recently because you guys were getting to go on tour. We were getting ready yeah. to go on tour. Literally the day before sort of everything shut down, I was uh, doing a show with your uh, good friend and drummer, Brad Wilk, and uh, some guys... In Hollywood, and we left that show kind of like joking, like, hey, maybe we'll cross paths this summer on tour somewhere if this thing doesn't get shut down. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> and the next day it all did. So, yeah, so we had yeah. this tour. We were going to go out and do this. We were doing a two set show as one set of our music and one set covering uh, Rush, A Farewell to Kings. Who were like, you know, on top of all of this, Alex Sipes is probably one of my biggest influences ever. Sure. And, you know, all around greatest guy on the planet. So, yeah, this was, we were going to, we had, actually, it started, we just had this gap. We were going to go and do like 20 shows or something, just one off of us playing that album and just for fun and for the fans. And so we were gearing up for that when things got shut down. And then that snowballed into uh, eventually doing a lot of shows. So we just did like three months of doing that. And we're going to go out and do another whatever next year, two or three months of that kind of same thing. Yeah, it's fun. So everybody goes, I will, I vow to go see the Primuses again. <laughs> like we toured together in 1993. You, you, the year that Rage Against the Machine opened Lollapalooza in 1993, you headlined, you closed, right? Yeah, well, technically the word is headlined. I think that uh, no other band wanted to be the last band on there because it's a long day. That's also true. That's yeah, also so we, true. we were technically we were the traffic buffer. Uh -huh. <laughs> that was a fun tour because, yeah, because you guys, you guys, were, like you guys started, we ended. We were almost sort of like 
You guys were there when people were getting there, and we were there when people were leaving. Yeah, so- <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't undersell you. So people greatly enjoyed the primuses, and and I just remember now that we jammed together at one of those shows. I remember being nervous. That was like, you know, I was pretty nervous because you know nobody was there at one thirty in the afternoon or whatever, but. Everybody, even if a few, a few might have left, a few Allison Chains fans might have yeah, left. Yeah, yeah. But, but, uh, but I remember being like nervous. Like I'm like, I better get my licks together. And then I went out there and sort of noodled around for a while, wholly unnoticed. Whatever genius I was applying the instrument was wholly unnoticed by the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I remember that. I remember that being fun because it was like, oh, here's an opportunity to get guys out there and have fun and make the best yeah. of this. You know, that was awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I, I did, I did appreciate the invitation. It was, it was super fun. That was fun. Well, Larry, it, it's it's lovely speaking with you. I hope that we can do a chat in person at the Rainbow Talking Metal in even greater depth. But uh, thank you for your time today, sir. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I am looking forward to that hang. I'm Tom Morello. This has been Maximum Firepower. Until next time, take it easy, but take it. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the SiriusXM app. Search Maximum Firepower.